Lord, it's just good to be quiet. And it's, it's pretty rare not to have noise in our lives. Uh, it's just the way it is in this culture. And even to take 30 seconds is a change for us. When, when it's quiet for 30 seconds, we start wondering what's wrong. Because it's never quiet. Yet you have told us to be still and know that you are God. But not only is it noisy, but life is fast, and we don't have time to be still. And even when we read that little phrase in the scripture, we tend to read it fast. It's hard for us to be still. Funny how we are. We get some time off, and uh, after a couple days, we don't know what to do with ourselves. It's hard for us to relax. It's hard for us uh, not to do what we normally do. There are times when that's really necessary. I'm just impressed, Lord, with uh, the fact that we're, we're moving at a pretty fast clip and we're on this pace that uh, is, is like being on a treadmill at 50 miles an hour all the time. And that's why it is uh, important that we get out of the normal routine and have time to meet with you. It's why you said in Scripture that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. We need to be connected uh, with your people, and uh, we need to be connected with you. So that's, that's one reason we uh, worship on Sundays, it's one reason we're here on Wednesday nights. I thank you for these guys. I thank you for their faithfulness. Thank you for guys that are here the first time. We got some guys in transition. We got some guys making major moves. We've got some guys that are coming uh, into Texas. We've got guys that are leaving Texas. And uh, you are in the heavens and you oversee it all. We would pray that tonight, Lord, you would um, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. We ask, Lord, that uh, we, 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 don't, we, we just don't read the text. We, we ask that your spirit would teach us. Some of us, Lord, need to be encouraged. Uh, some of us, Lord, need to be uh, rebuked. Some of us, Lord... Uh, are uh, confused 
and we need to be reassured. Some of us uh, are fearful, and um, we need to be reminded that we are to fear not. The Lord is the defense of my life. So, uh, What we are, Lord, we're all needy. We're all needy. And we all need you. So tonight, you are the great shepherd. You are uh, the one who has given himself for us. We ask, Lord, that you would, for each guy, that you would feed our souls and our hearts and that you would prescribe the right medicine and that you would give, us to, give it to us in the right dosage uh, to heal our hearts and to mend our lives. And that would be our prayer. And we pray it in the supreme name in all of the universe. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Guys, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. This uh, semester, for lack of a better term, that we started uh, in mid-September, I think it was, we have been talking about events. The events that um, the events that we plan, but more importantly, we have been talking about the events that we have not planned, the events that God has planned. You know, as you go through life, uh, life is a series of events, and uh, some of them surprise us, and some of them shock us, and some of them shake us, but. Uh, all of the events of our lives and all of the circumstances of our lives are under the control um, of our Heavenly Father. It's interesting, isn't it, that we pray to God the Father. Uh, we... we uh, that's what the scripture proclaims. He is our father. Now, and for some, I'll tell you what's interesting about that. Some of you guys uh, had dads who, who absolutely loved you with all their hearts, would do anything for you, and did whatever it took for you. They loved you. They encouraged you. They believed in you. They would discipline you, they'd rebuke you, but they loved you. They didn't get it all right, but you knew their hearts, and you, and, and you knew your dad was on your team. Now, if you have that, my gosh, you're a blessed man. Other guys in here didn't have that. They had the polar opposite. Uh, some guys in here... Uh, it's possible. It's probable. This many guys, some guys in here, uh, no relationship with your father. He left when you were young. 
Uh, increasingly, guys in our culture don't even know who their fathers are. Uh, you know what's amazing to me in our culture? You've got multitudes of young kids that are trying to figure out who their fathers are, and they'll never know who their father is because their father was an anonymous donor to a sperm bank. And they will never know. Never. That's a tragedy. Some of you guys knew your dads, but um, your dad uh, wounded you, and he scarred you. Uh, He abused you. Uh, He devastated you. And that's a heavy weight. It's a heavy weight to carry. And uh, since you've come to Christ, it has been your heartfelt desire to not ever do that to your kids and to put a new link in the generational chain. We have a Heavenly Father who is perfect. And we have a Heavenly Father who is in uh, charge of our lives and who is in charge of the events of our lives. Uh, And we have said throughout this study that our Father works. And and, and again, I'm going to repeat myself here and sound like a broken record, but... You can never hear this enough. I can never hear this enough. In our lives, God works providentially. Every detail. He's our Father. He's very, very concerned. Uh, There's an old Jewish proverb that says, One father is worth more than a hundred schoolmasters. Did you get that? A good father is worth more than a hundred good teachers. Uh, because, because a good father, the impact and the influence that a good father can have is, is absolutely remarkable. We, we have a great father. We have a good father. He works providentially. He works strangely. Sometimes he works slowly. But he works. He's, overse- he's overseen all the events of our lives. One of the ways that God works in our lives And one of the events that he will bring into our lives from time to time is, um, and we don't usually refer to this as an event, but it is, uh, our Father, our Heavenly Father, will bring into our lives an event of discipline. Discipline. Why? Because he's our Father. Hebrews 12 Does this one surprise you? Kind of coming in the back door on this one. But there is a significant section in Hebrews 12 about the fact that we are not to be ignorant of the fact that our Father, our great Father, our perfect Father, will discipline us. Not just once, but throughout our lives on this earth because he's trying to achieve something. I think we forget this. I think we forget this often. Uh, we believe in grace. We believe in amazing grace. We, we, we believe in the loving kindness of God. We believe in the favor of God. We believe that the grace of God never stops. That's what the scripture tells us. We believe that it comes and it flows into our lives like Niagara Falls. Uh, 
the, the grace of God is, is immeasurable. It, 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 is good to, um, it is good to soak in the grace of God. There is nothing like on a cold night. We have some friends that live up north of Sacramento in the Sierras. And they live, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a little town up there called Paradise. And there's a reason they named it that. And they live on the edge of a canyon that is pretty significant. And, and, and Bob built his house, built a deck. And when you're on the deck, you're just, oh, you know, he built the deck and he put the hot tub here. And you walk out about here and you just look down the canyon. I'd say 800 to 1,000 feet. And uh, you put in this hot tub. And it's about 22 degrees outside. And you walk out on that deck. And he's, he's had that water getting ready for quite a while. And you slide in that hot tub. And you just, uh, well, I just, I just jacuzzi in it. <laughs> I just glory in it. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it in the world. Well, that's the grace of God. When you understand the grace of God, you know what it is? When you really get it, when you're starting to get it, and, 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 and the goodness and the riches and the favor, and God's not mad at me because I'm in Christ. Jesus went to the cross for me. For by grace you've been saved. For by what? For by grace you've been saved through faith. Grace you don't deserve. Because grace means that Jesus, the Father's Son, came. He who lived a sinless life went to the cross to die for you and me, who are sinners to the core. He was our substitute. So he, Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you've been saved. Through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works. Uh, this is new to you. This is how you come to be in a relationship with God the Father. The old road through Romans, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us. Romans 6.23. But the free gift of God. Is eternal. I learned this when I was seven years old at a vacation Bible school. Number one, I didn't want to be at a vacation Bible school. Uh, but I was there. And they kept putting these verses up, and I thought, gosh, come on. But I've been, I, I still remember this stuff. Um, Romans 6.23. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus went to the cross. And then you keep going through Romans, and it says, uh, if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So we say, so here, here's how we have a relationship with God, and here's how we have our sins forgiven. We, we say, Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I thank you for being my substitute. I, I thank you that, that you paid the price for me. 
and that this is a free gift. And I ask you to come into my life, and I ask you to take away my sin. The Bible says, whosoever, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? That means, I, th- I think this, I think it means this. I think it means you can just call on Jesus. And if you're calling on him, knowing that he is your only hope, you'll be saved. It's Jesus plus nothing. You can't light enough candles at Mass. You can't do enough good works. So we trust in Christ, and the Scriptures tell us, say, what does this have to do with God being our Father? Well, just give me a minute. Actually, give me about three minutes. Jesus, in talking with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you say, we're in Hebrews 12. We're getting there. In talking with Nicodemus, Jesus said, you must be born again. He said, do I enter into my mother's womb a second time? No. No. But just as we're born physically, so we must be born spiritually. Uh, When we are born spiritually and we ask Christ to take away our sins, and we trust in Christ alone for forgiveness, well, it's at that moment that we are born again. How many of you guys were uh, were, uh, there when your children were born? How many of you guys saw that? Yeah. That was just unbelievable, wasn't it? Now, let me ask you something. A birth is a great thing. And, you know, you know, the old school thing, you couldn't go in and see your wife. I remember when my brother Jeff was born. And, you know, I remember we went to Mrs. Frizee's maternity home <laughs> in Bakersfield. I can still remember that. And I remember they wouldn't let me in. I was four years old. There was a good reason they didn't let me in, but... I remember with my, you know, my Nana was watching me, and, 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 you know, my dad could only go at a certain time. My dad wasn't in there, and my mom was knocked out. I mean, that's how they used to do it. They, they used to put women out, and uh, they didn't, but that was old school. And now, you know, they don't take any drugs, and they scream for 12 days. It's, it's a wonderful experience. Aren't you glad you're not a woman? Thank you, God. But it's a great time, and you know, you do the Lamas and the breathing and all that stuff, and you, you know. And then, you have the, then that baby's born. It's the most miraculous thing you've ever seen. And you got friends coming in and family, and it's great. And then, because there's a birth, and you're calling friends, and you know, you're emailing all this. And then you take that little baby, and you run him down the street to the orphanage, and you drop him off. And you say, I'll send a check every month. No. Because you see, the birth is important, but the birth is just the first step. You see, you have birth, but then from that point on, you're going to have growth. Uh, By the way, it always amazes me. uh, I've always enjoyed Paul Johnson's book, Intellectuals. talks about the great intellectuals that, you know, the world system thinks is so great. Uh, the university system would say these guys are the cream of the crop. He starts with uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and uh, the darling of the left. And, uh, you know, you'll hear about Rousseau, and he's uh, Rousseau, you know, Rousseau. Anyway, Johnson has a little section on Rousseau. 
And one of the interesting things about Rousseau, I mean, this, this guy is one of the, uh, this guy is one of the, the, the sacred anointed in, in, uh, in secular humanism. Uh, Johnson writes this. He said, since a large part of Rousseau's reputation rests on his theories about the upbringing of children, and understand this, a lot of the theories about how children are to be raised uh, in a village context. <laughs> Historically comes from Rousseau. Okay? Listen to this. A large part of Rousseau's reputation rests on his theories about the upbringing of children. It is curious that in real life, as opposed to writing, he took so little interest in children. Uh, he goes on and mentions the fact that Rousseau was never married, lived with a gal, had five children by this woman. Every time they had a baby, Rousseau would take the child, put it in a basket, take it down to the children's hospice, and just leave it at the gate. And he'd walk away. He did it five times. Never named the children except for the first one. Never followed up. And basically, back then, there were so many children, the immorality was so great back then, in the 1700s in Paris, that about 8,000 kids a year were being dropped off in a basket. This great man of insight in the children. He could uh, conceive them, but that's all he could do. In 1772, nearly 8,000 children, babies, infants a year, were dropped off. Two-thirds of the babies died in their first year. An average of 14 out of every 100 survived to the age of 7. 14 out of 100 survived till 7. And of these five and of these, and of these 14 out of the 100, five grew to maturity, most of them becoming beggars. Rousseau did not even note the dates of the births of his five children and never took any interest in what happened to them. That's a lousy father. Our father is not only concerned about our birth, our father is concerned about our growth. And because he is concerned about our growth, we will encounter events of discipline. We believe in the grace of God. We glory in the grace of God. We jacuzzi in the grace of God. But sometimes I hear foolish things said based on the grace of God. Um, let's start in Hebrews 12. And for some reason, I turned back to the Psalms. But let's start in Hebrews chapter 12. Because these events of discipline happen from time to time. And they're not unusual. But we don't talk about them a lot. Notice, if you will, verse 5. He says, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. See, it's easy for us to forget this exhortation. Especially when you're so big on grace. I've heard some people say, well, God's a God of grace, and because God's a God of grace, you see, that means basically I can do anything I want. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard anybody say, well, you know, I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it, and then I'm going to ask for forgiveness? That's really stupid. That's, that's, that's really dumb. 
That is presuming on the grace of God. And if indeed you do that, you're going to, well, it's all grace. It's, it's, it is all grace, but part of grace is the discipline of a father. And a lot of times folks don't factor that in. Well, God wouldn't discipline me. Oh, oh, oh yes, he would. Oh, yes, he would. Well, I believe in grace. That's why you're going to be disciplined. Note what it says here. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Here's what happens to us from time to time as we go through life. We don't mean for this to happen, but sometimes we get very proud. Sometimes we get very arrogant. Sometimes um, we... uh, Sometimes our hearts start to become hard. Sometimes we begin to subtly drift. Sometimes we, we become, catch this, sometimes we become disobedient to our Father. And when that happens, He is going to step in and discipline us. Uh, and when God, dis- it says, do not lightly regard Do not act like the discipline of the Lord is not a big deal. Because the discipline of the Lord is a big deal. And I'll tell you why it's a big deal. When when we find ourselves drifting, and and let me say this to you. When an event happens in your life that stuns you and shocks you and surprises you, one of the questions you ought to ask yourself is, am I being disciplined? Um, Recently, someone I'm acquainted with uh, who's been in great health, was rushed to the hospital. And um, they were having a, a series and series of convulsions. They never had anything like this in their life. Um, and it became a, a life-threatening situation for them. And uh, family was called, and people were praying all over the country. And now, now, if that were to happen to me, if it were to happen to you, I mean, you don't expect that. It's out of the blue. At some point, when I regain consciousness, I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. One of the things that it's good to ask is, is, is Lord, are you disciplining me? Now, let me say this, and you've got to hear this. This is really important. Not every event, uh, not every setback, not every sickness is a discipline of God. It's very important that you hear that. It's very important that you hear that. But it's possible that it could be because our Father is in control of all the circumstances of our life and He uses circumstances to discipline us. So at a point, it's good to ask the question, well, Lord, are you disciplining me here? He may or He may not. You say, well, how do I know that He is? If He is, the Spirit of God will witness to your spirit you know, there's this area here that I have not dealt with. You guys know what I'm talking about? God doesn't confuse us. If God is going to discipline us, he doesn't make us guess. Is it what's behind door number one? Or door number two? or door? No. The Spirit of God, when, when, when there is something wrong in our lives, part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict us. 
So if there's an issue, so you ask the question, Lord, is, there, is, is this something you, and if there is, he'll let you know. Now, what does the scripture say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What I'm saying, and again, I want to make it real clear, not every event that's negative is a discipline. But we ought to be aware of the fact that we can drift. We ought to be aware of the fact that we can get off center, we, just as our kids can. And because the Lord loves us, he will discipline us. Now, so don't lightly regard it. And when God disciplines you, and you here, here's, here's something that is critical. I see this with guys all the time. God's trying to get their attention. You see this in the Old Testament kings. God's trying to get somebody's attention, and they lightly regard it. Don't do that. Because if God is trying to get your attention, and if God has convicted you over something, and you lightly regard it and ignore it, I noticed with my dad growing up that if my dad disciplined me about something, and I didn't respond the way he wanted me to, it was kind of interesting because I noticed a trend. And what I began to notice was that if I didn't respond and I lightly regarded what my dad was trying to do in my life, the discipline intensified. I wasn't real bright, but I began to figure this out. I began to figure out it'd be a lot better, it'd be a lot better for me not to lightly regard it but to really regard what my dad's trying to do in my life. Because, quite frankly, the discipline was not as difficult. The more I resisted, the more, the more intense the discipline became, became. Right? You know that. So pay attention to what the Lord's saying. Now watch. Let's go to the next line. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Sometimes God will discipline us, sometimes God will reprove us. Let's say you, you realize, you know what, I think this is an area God's disciplining me here. I've had a bad attitude. Uh, it, it, it could be over a number of things, but he's trying to correct me. He's not trying to ruin me. He's trying to correct me. He's trying to mature me. He, he's, he, he... Let's go on to the next one. Don't faint when you were reproved by him. For, now watch this. And you say, well, wait a minute. The, the discipline can be a little bit painful. Sometimes it's, it's, it's very painful if you've resisted him. Okay? Now we're going to work our way through here pretty quickly. Now I want you to... I want, if, the dif, if, if the discipline is hard, and let me say this to you. Sometimes you will realize you're being disciplined and you will confess your sin to the Lord. And when you do that in genuine brokenness and repentance... You're forgiven. Does that, does that mean that the consequences of the discipline will immediately stop? No. Are you immediately forgiven? Yes. Do the consequences immediately come to an end? No. No. Sometimes you're going to be in it for a while. And you say, man, I don't want to be in this. And this is hard and this is difficult. Well, you know what? It says, don't faint. When you were approved by him. Well, why not? This is hard. This is difficult. I don't like this. Look at the next line. Because those whom the Lord, what? Loves. He disciplines. See, the reason you're in it, and the reason the circumstance, if indeed you're being disciplined, 
if you feel by the Spirit of God you're being disciplined about something in your life, he's trying to change you. You you know, he's trying to move you to something that we're going to see here in a minute that he wants to do in our lives. There's a concept called holiness. We don't talk about holiness a lot. When I was a kid in church, there used to be holiness meetings. There used to be a song we would sing. Take time to be holy. Some of you old guys remember that song. We used to talk about holiness all the time. So what's holiness? Holiness is godliness. He wants to conform me into the image of Christ. But what happens? Well, sometimes, you know, it says in Psalm 23, verse 3, it says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, sometimes what happens is we start veering. We start getting off track. And, and, and sometimes I don't realize it. So what do you do? He'll discipline me. That's what my dad would do. Wouldn't your dad do that? Son, no, no, we're not doing it that way. No, I don't like, you're not going to talk to your mother like that. And then you get reproved and you see. Now, why does God discipline us? And, and, and sometimes it's, 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 it's really pressing in on us and it's hard. We say, man, I don't think I can take this. No, you can take it. You'll take it. You don't like it, but you take it. Well, but why is it, why is it, he loves you. Look at, he loves, you know, one of the greatest, one of the greatest expressions of the grace of God that will ever occur in your life or mine is the discipline of God. He's saving us. He's keeping us from destruction. If I keep drifting, if I keep going down that road, if I keep going down there, if I keep, that's destruction. Well, he loves me too much. He loves me. He loves me. So what will he do? He'll, he'll discipline me. Now, I've got I to move on this. i really got to move because I'd like to take more time on each line. But look at, look at uh, the next line. And he scourges every son whom he receives. He scourges. You say, that's a, that's a pretty strong word. Yeah, it really means to whip. He whips. This isn't real popular today. He scourges. Jesus was scourged. They put, they, you see? Uh, you read Proverbs, it talks about disciplining a child. Why do you discipline a child? Because you love the child. Proverbs 19, 18 says, discipline your son while there is hope. You see? Sometimes God will... Um, God will take off the belt and give us a few whacks on the rear end. Why? He's trying to save my life. Don't go that way. No. No. I want you back here. That's what he does. Isn't this what you do with your kids? If you're a good dad? Sure it is. I've been scourged all my life. Haven't you? I remember my mom going out and getting a little, little switch. Off the tree. Gosh, I hated that sucker. Sucker just stung. I remember third grade, Mrs. Lemert. (laughs) Little lady, about 103 years old. Gray hair in a bun. I mean, let me tell you something. That lady could handle a classroom. You could have put the Crips and the Bloods in her classroom. (laughs) And she'd handle those suckers. 
she'd, t- she'd say, Stephen Farrar, come here. And I came. And she'd take out that little ruler and take my hand. Gosh, darn, that hurts. You didn't say that. You just took it. And you're trying not to cry. Boy, she'd whack the snot out of my knuckles. I remember, and I'll never forget the Sunday I saw Mrs. Lamert at church, at my church. And I thought, maybe she'll get saved. I did. I thought, maybe, the, maybe she's going to get saved. You know what I didn't realize? She was saved. That was a godly woman. That's why good stuff happened in that classroom. That was a godly woman who used discipline to keep things in check. I actually learned things that year, as opposed to fourth grade under Mrs. Ansoliba hair, where I didn't learn much. Third grade, I I didn't like it, but I learned it. (laughs) Funny how that works, isn't it? Now look at verse 7, guys. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, unfortunately, in our culture, there's a whole bunch of them. Isn't there? And that's a tragedy. You know we're not, we're not talking about abuse. We're not talking about destruction. We're talking about discipline. Two great treatments on this. Dobson wrote a book, Dare to Discipline. One of Chuck's best books, I think, is You and Your Child about discipline in a child. What does he say here? It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with what? Sons. He's your father. He's your father. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You've got to ask yourself this question. Do I see any time in my life where God has disciplined me? And if, and if you can't see it, you need to consider if you really know him. Because those whom he loves, he disciplines. See, it's possible to just be a, you say, I've been in church all my life. Well, that's the problem with growing up in Texas or Alabama or Georgia. You see, you're from Massachusetts. Nobody goes to church. A few people do. But down here, it's, you guys know what I'm saying. It's possible here to say, well, I've been in church all my life. That doesn't mean you know Christ. You may know about Christ. It doesn't mean you know Christ. If, if you are a son of God, if he is your father, he will discipline you. If you've never been disciplined, you're not a son. Now go on. I want you to look at verse 9, if you would. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. You know what's interesting to me? For some reason, I can remember when Josh was just a little guy, and I had to discipline him. And, and this happened on more than one occasion, but I can still remember that upstairs bedroom in Coppell. He was probably six or seven. And, and you know, it's interesting, because this is how my dad did it, and so I did it this way with my kids. But uh, you don't ever discipline out of anger, and you're not mad, and you're not out of control. That's how it's supposed to be. That's how it must be. Because if you're out of control, 
And if you're angry, it's not discipline. So first of all, you've got to discipline yourself. And you've got you to get a grip on yourself. Now, what my dad would do to me is, hey, Steve, and my dad was always very calm because he wasn't going to get whipped. I was. <laughs> but my dad would say, Steve, and then he'd explain to me what I had done wrong, which I already knew. But he would explain to me, and he said, it's because, and we discussed it, and we talked about it. This is why you're being disciplined. So I remember doing that with Josh. He's just a little guy. And I remember disciplining him. And after I'd spanked him, he's a little guy. He grabs me. He hugs my leg. He just hugged me. He's just right there with me. And you know what? It was over. It was done with. And he's hugging my leg. And then I pick him up. And he cries. And we're just there in the bedroom. And he gets it out. I said, okay, you all right? I said, you okay? He goes, yeah. I said, all right, man. Let's go downstairs and get some ice cream. So we go downstairs and get a little bluebell. Okay? That's how you do it. Uh, they'll hug your leg. They'll respect you for disciplining them. They, you know what? They want it. They need it. And can I say this? I need it. I need it to keep me in check. No, we gotta, we got to move. That's where the respect comes in in verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Our, our folks, our dads did what they could do to discipline us. And uh, even if you had the best dad in the world, he didn't get, always get it right, did he? Sometimes, you know, your, your brother was at fault, and it looked like you were at fault, and you got spanked for what your brother did. Remember that? Now, if you've been bitter about that for 60 years, you probably need to move on. <laughs> right? Our, our, our folks did the best they could do. You're doing the best you can do with your kids, or if your kids are, you did the best you could. Okay? But look at this. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his, his what? His holiness. So you know, what's holiness again, Steve? It's godliness. He wants us to be like him. He doesn't want us to be like the world. So he doesn't want us to be liars. And he doesn't want us to be cheats. And he doesn't want us to be hard-hearted with our wives and with our kids. And he does whatever the things we get off on, you know, we, we, and we don't mean to, we just kind of drift and, you know, we'll just kind of drift and then he'll... He doesn't want us there. He wants us holy. He wants us godly. He, he wants the Spirit of God to be producing in my life. So when I get off it, he, he checks me. Is this making sense? Oh, by the way, here's the thing about God. The discipline God always hand, when God hands out discipline, it's, perf, it's perfect. It's not excessive. It's not too little. It's perfect. It fits what we need exactly. Exactly. And God has never erred in discipline. Ever. Ever. Now, I love 11. I love it. I think 11 is one of the great understatements in the entire Bible. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. I would concur with that. 
If you've ever been disciplined by the Lord, and maybe you fought him for a little bit, and you know, and you, you know, you resisted, and then he really had to crunch you, let me tell you something, it's not joyful. It's not joyful at all. It's painful. It's painful. It brings sorrow. Sometimes you sorrow over the discipline, and you want out from under it. Now watch this. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Catch this. Yet to those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Did you notice that? Not just righteousness. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You know what that is? That's a type of joy. So he disciplines us, which is not joyful, in order to produce something in my life that will lead me to joy. And and, and what is this whole discipline thing about? It's to train me. It's to train me. Philip Keller wrote one of the greatest books. I, I, I back up. Philip Keller, in my opinion, wrote the greatest book on Psalm 23 that was ever published in the 20th century. Uh, Philip Keller uh, died a few years ago. He was raised on a ranch in East Africa. His father uh, uh, had a, a, a very large ranch. His father bred cattle, all kinds of cattle. Uh, he worked on his dad's ranch. He loved the land. He went on and got a degree in agriculture. And then he immigrated to Canada. And as a young man in his 20s, he got some money together and he bought uh, a rundown ranch, just in great disrepair, on the southernmost tip of uh, Vancouver Island in Canada. Uh, took every dime he had. And what his goal was and what his dream was, he was going to build a great cattle ranch on that property that had been abandoned. But his problem was, he'd spent every dime he had getting the property. And he didn't have any money to buy cattle. So he had to buy sheep. And he hated sheep. I'm going to read you, I'm going to take, I asked Lou to really help me on my time, because I'm going to read you this story. It's from his little book called Lessons from a Sheepdog. My mother-in-law sent me this book for my birthday. You're going to love this story. And, and it's all going to tie into Hebrews 12. So we're going to turn out the light. And I want you to... Cl- no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Let's pick it up right here. Okay? Guys in Canada, not enough money to get cattle. Okay. I realized that I faced a serious dilemma with my first flock. I simply had to find a sheepdog to help me handle the ewes and the lambs that grazed on my impoverished pastures. My highest hope was to come across a well-bred border collie. For all the breeds, they are the finest sheepdogs. Later in the book, he talks about the fact that a good border collie with a good master can do the work of five men on a sheep ranch. In passing, I might mention that during those initial months at Fairwinds, which I named my ranch, That's what we called our spot by the sea. I began to wonder seriously why I had allowed myself to be stuck with sheep. 
Compared to cattle, they seem stupid, timid, frail, vulnerable to disease and parasites, and easy prey to predators. Little did I then comprehend the wondrous ways of God or his hand at work behind the scene of my affairs. Little did I realize the enormous eternal lessons he would teach me on those windblown acres where I struggled to make a beautiful county estate out of derelict land. He did not realize in his 20s that one day he would write one of the greatest books ever written on Psalm 23. All he knew was he didn't have enough money. There was a reason he didn't have enough money. God wanted to use him. Okay. One day there was a short advertisement in the city newspaper. It read, Wanted, a good country home for a purebred border collie. Chases cars and bicycles. <laughs> and then he tells a story that he went to his neighbor's uh, farmhouse, got the phone, called the lady. She said, please come immediately. He made the 27-mile drive, uh, found the house. The lady was waiting for him as he walked in, and she basically said, Mr. Keller, I can't do a thing with this creature. This dog, this dog is plum crazy. She's absolutely loco. The woman throws up her arms in dismay. All she does is tear after the kids, chase boys on bicycles, jumps the fences, races after every car that comes by the road. Please let me see her, I requested, trying to calm the lady's excitement. Maybe I can do something with her. I've had dogs all my life. She led me around to the back of the house. We entered the little yard, and a leaping bundle of dog flung herself towards me. She snarled and snapped, then collapsed in a heap on the ground. Instantly, to my shock and horror, I saw that the dog was not only chained from her collar to a steel post, but was hobbled by a second chain from her neck to the back of her leg. It was pitiful. Crouched in the dirt, this little dog glared at me. Her ears were laid back in anger. Deep, guttural, menacing growls rumbled in her throat. How old is she, I asked. My question put to the owner to help cover the profound pity and love that welled up within me. And what is her name? The owner replied that the dog was two years old and her name was Lassie. I looked at the border collie with mingled emotion. She was a dog gone wrong, almost beyond hope or help. Yet somehow I saw beyond this, and in her I saw a keen intelligence and a great capacity to learn. She had a splendid constitution with a deep, wide chest, a broad back, and strong legs. The master breeders had done a magnificent job of producing such a superb creature. At two years of age, most dogs have learned all they will ever know, I said to the lady. But this dog is too beautiful to destroy. I'm prepared to give her a chance to change. The owner was still intense, waiting for my next words. I will take her home to my ranch on one condition, and I weighed each word very carefully. If I cannot do a thing for her or with her, after six weeks, I will bring her back to you. She is too lovely a dog for me to put her away. But if I return her, you must destroy her. Because he couldn't bear to see that little dog live in those conditions. The lady agreed to my proposition. So he tells how he took the little dog, put it in the back seat, and they're driving back to his ranch. And he'll reach back to pet her, and she'll snap at him. Reaching the ranch, this will take about six more minutes, guys. You still with me? Okay, you got your jammies and your blankie.
<laughs> and because it's our last night, we'll pray, and then we're going to have Bluebell. <laughs> Reaching the ranch, i got to tell you something, this is great stuff. Reaching the ranch, I felt a peculiar inner assurance that somehow this torn and twisted little dog would be redeemed. Our land lay at the very end of the country road where it ran into the sea. There were virtually no cars to chase, no boys on bicycles to tempt her. Just the wide rolling pastures and the rugged shoreline where ocean waves thundered against the land. Most important, there was a new master. Lass was given a kennel with fresh, clean bedding. She had a bowl of sparkling water and a dish heaped with food, and she would touch none of them. Every advance made to touch her was rejected. Any attempts to call her were resisted belligerently day after day. She was beginning to lose physical condition, and I even began to fear that she might die. In an act of faltering faith, I settled on a daring step. I decided to set her totally free. The instant I did so, she fled into the forest behind our cottage. In a matter of moments, she disappeared from view, and I wondered if I would ever see her again. For several days, I drove up and down the road looking for her, asking other ranchers in the area to let me know if they saw her. But there was no sign of her anywhere. It was as if she had simply vanished into the ocean air. Then one evening, I happened to glance up at the top of a large rock formation behind our home. And there on the summit, Lass lay crouched like a hunted cougar looking down at me. I called her name, but she turned and ran. That evening, I took food and water and placed them on the rock for her. The next morning, they were gone. I began to feed her regularly at the rock, but there was no response to any of the overtures I made to her. A couple of weeks later, a small band of sheep grazed near her rock. I noticed she took a keen interest in them. She would cock her head, rise on her haunches, and watch them intently. Her latent instincts were coming to life. So evening after evening, I brought up a few ewes and lambs to graze near her. During this time, no intimate rapport had been established between us. I felt an enormous compassion for this beautiful dog. Four more paragraphs. An intense longing permeated my whole being for her to come to me, to get to know me to trust me, to learn to love me, to work with me, to be my friend. Yet week was following week, and the time was approaching when she might have to be destroyed. It was an appalling alternative that that filled me with absolute dismay. Then one evening, the sun was setting in a golden haze over the ocean. The sheep were grazing contentedly at the water's edge. I stood entranced with my, my hands clasped behind my back, caught up in the wonder and beauty of it all. And suddenly I felt a warm nose touch my hand. Lass had come back. My heart seemed to stop with ecstasy. Contact had been made. She had found the fortitude to let me touch her life. It was the turning point in our relationship. Lass discovered that she had a new master whom she could truly trust. And the rest of this book, Lessons from a Sheepdog, 
is about how Philip Keller took this little dog that had a new master and trained her to the degree that she became a legend on this island. People would come and visit on a regular basis to see this phenomenal little dog that works so closely with her master. He talks in here about how there was distance on this ranch and he taught her he taught her not only to obey his voice commands but he taught her to follow his hand signals. And sometimes he would be a half mile away and Philip Keller was a very tall man, very small dog. He could see things she couldn't see. And a half mile away, she couldn't hear the ocean roar. And there were times when he would go, and she'd stop, because he could see something she couldn't see. That didn't happen overnight. He trained her. He talks about the fact that the training didn't come easily. Uh, at certain times of the year, they would burn their fields. And she just loved to see the sparks. And he would say, stay. And she would stay. But she'd see those sparks. And finally, she couldn't contain herself. And she'd go after the sparks. And, and then they'd get in her coat. And she would try to get them out of the ground. And, and then she'd realize she'd been disobedient. Two more paragraphs. She became essentially a one-man dog. But at times, she would struggle with obedience. She could quickly sense when I was disappointed. She knew at once when a coolness came between us because of her misconduct. She would have to be corrected for her failure to be faithful in the line of duty. These moments of discipline were difficult moments for both of us, but they were absolutely essential for her well-being and mine. The operation of the ranch and our success with the sheep depended in large measure upon her implicit obedience. When the discipline was done, I would gather Lass up in my arms. I would caress her head, rub her chest, and whisper in her ears, it's all over, girl. It's all over. Her eyes would shine again. There was total reconciliation and restoration in pure pleasure. She would leap out of my arms, race around the grass in a wide circle, and come leaping back into my arms for another embrace. That's what God does with us. He trains us. He trains us. Jesus said, if you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We don't always do that, do we? So sometimes he disciplines. Why? To train us so that he can use us. So that we can be of use to the master. Let's pray. Father, it isn't all discipline. It's not all discipline.
but we need to ask the question, am I being disciplined? And if we are, Lord, it's not because you're against us. It's because you're for us. It's because you love us. It's because you, you, you know what you want us to become. What a great God you are. And Lord, there are guys sitting in here, a lot of us, and we've been disciplined. Gosh, have we ever been disciplined? But it was, it was out of your amazing love. We were disciplined out of grace. The best of us need to be disciplined because we're flawed men. And, and Lord, you're so gracious. You'll deal with us. You'll discipline us. And then, and then we hug you and you hug us. And it's over and it's done with. And there's a joy that is unspeakable. We're completely reconciled and we're safe and we're secure. Give us discernment as we think about these issues. For the guy with an overly sensitive conscience, temper that because he'll be too hard on himself. For the guy with a dull conscience, sharpen it so that he can hear and not take this lightly. Give us teachable hearts so we can respond and experience that joy of being trained in holiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.